to only say, I'm going to talk about your faith and your, you know, spirituality and nothing else matters is really um, forcing people to live sort of fractured and compartmentalized lives. So I think one of our witnesses is to figure out a way to engage the whole person in ministry. Welcome to all God's children. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go and talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Thank you for joining the Raceless Gospel Podcast, where word meets flesh, and where we gather to talk about the sticks and stones that break the skin and bones of the body of Christ and the structure of a church service. I am your host and podcast pastor, Starlet Thomas. Season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast is brought to you in part by the CBF Podcast. Since 2016, the CBF Podcast has delivered over 300 episodes of interviews with thinkers, authors, theologians, creatives, and practitioners for conversations that matter. These critical and innovative conversations have garnered weekly support from around the world. The CBF Podcast tries to cultivate healthy and diverse theological dialogue in a culture fraught with division. Stream and subscribe to the CBF Podcast on Apple, Google, Amazon, SoundCloud, and all other major podcast platforms. Learn more at cbf.net slash podcasts. On today's podcast, I am joined by Jamie Edie Chisholm, who is a clinically trained chaplain and a certified trauma professional who holds certification in death, dying, and bereavement from the Association of Death Education and Counseling. We will discuss the body language of the North American church, which sits on its hands when asked what it's going to do to address mental health. But first, won't you pray for us? And do pray with me. God who takes care of babies and fools, who looks out for people who defy wisdom and drool, teach us how to view those we reduce to so-called wild people on the loose, Make our hearts tender to their needs, and may we grieve for minds not at ease due to chemical imbalance and trauma. We confess they're not off their rocker as they rock back and forth on pews in alleys and padded rooms. Instead, they have been shaken to the core, and they can't shake it. They can't just move on or get over it. So they pull the covers over their head and they refuse to get out of bed. They don't want to talk to anybody and they sometimes don't take their meds. Yes, it's good for them. Yes, we know what's best for them. And God, we're only trying to help them until they refuse it. Or we sit on our hands and hope they have better luck next time, that they'll just get better with time. Forgive us for pushing them to the back of our minds and to the margins of society because we don't understand them or why this is happening, because we can't fix them or make this problem go away, so we put them away, out of sight, out of mind. We are commanded to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind. So may we love them and their minds enough to take care of them and to look out for them too. Amen. I've got a testimony about depression 
it begins, You must be out of your mind. This was the response I received when I asked questions that pushed back on parental authority. When I stepped out of line and out of a child's place, when I started asking questions as a teenager about sexual abuse and accountability. We don't talk about either in my family. Though everyone in my family claims to have grown up in the church, there is lots of spiritual bypassing. We all know that it has happened and is happening, but our family system doesn't have a plan in place to protect victims. Instead, we cover for the predator, the pedophile, and file it away until he comes around. Then the girls are asked to cover up and to avoid his hugs and invitations to sit down on his lap. What this meant started coming up and it took me to a dark place. I couldn't lift my head up once I realized whose hands were keeping his in places they had no business being. They didn't stop him from visiting, from attending family functions. Instead, they treated us girls like we were crazy. It wasn't that bad. He didn't mean no harm. But what did it mean for my own body, for its autonomy, and for the sexual advances of male family members that kept coming? Because the door was wide open now. I wanted to make it stop. And so the dark thoughts started coming. The pain would stop and he would be stopped from coming into my bedroom, I thought. Even when he wasn't around, I couldn't make the thoughts go away. So I told someone I trusted and started seeing a therapist who realized what was going on right away. The illusion of security within my family had been stripped away and I was falling apart Mentally unprepared for the implications of my actual reality, I wanted to sit this life out. I didn't want to go on living, and so I went out of my mind first to detach from my body. This testimony is not easy, but it is necessary to show the intersectionality of mental health and family trauma and how mine was failing because family members sat on their hands choosing to fail me. Because in their minds, there was no other way. Our scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 24b and 25, and it reads this way in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is Reverend Starlet Thomas, your podcast pastor, and we'll be right back. I'm Wanda Hardy-Kidd. I'm a retired campus minister in my late 60s living in North Carolina. A couple of years ago, burdened by grief, I left home alone, a road trip, just me, my truck camper, and a broken spirit. 
but I found healing in my desert wanderings. This June, join me for the journey again. 30 episodes, a short one each day. Journey Through the Desert, from me, Wanda Hardy Kid, and Good Faith Media. This is Reverend Starlet Thomas, welcoming you back to this episode of the Raceless Gospel Podcast. I want to introduce to some and present again to others, Jamie Edie Chisholm, who is the CEO of Thoughtful Transitions, a death doula and ordained minister. For today's sermon, we will engage in the tradition of call and response, a sacred back and forth. Feel free to join in as official members of the Amen Corner. Pray for us as we discuss the North American church's body language. First of all, I just want to thank you for, for being here uh, and for lending your voice to this very important topic. Uh, the first question is this, and it begins quite frankly with the story of Jesus. Uh, he's talking to the demoniac and he asks him to introduce himself and he says, my name is Legion. Uh, Jesus talks to people who have personal demons. In your opinion, how has the North American church talked about mental illness? Yeah, that's, it's such a good question. Thank you for, um, first of all, mental illness. I think the church has, has approached, has had conversation around mental illness in a couple of different ways. We have some that sort of ignore it altogether, right? It, we ignore, there is, there is no conversation literally whatsoever about mental illness, about wellness, what it means to, to be emotionally well, have, you know, there's no, there's no conversation. Then there are some um, who create this sort of false equivalency between mental illness and wellness and faith or a lack of That's right. faith. So if you are uh, one who suffers from depression, then you're, you know, you have weak faith or a lack of faith. If you have anxiety, that's a lack of faith. And then I think we have some who talk about um, mental illness, but sort of very haphazardly, right? So, you know, at one time, this is, I'm dating myself, but you know, 20 or so years ago, schizophrenia, schizophrenic was like every preacher was talking about people being schizophrenic. And I was like, you're not using it correctly. Like, I don't know that what you are describing, it's schizophrenia, right? And so we have people who, they, they wanna talk about it, but it's sort of, um, in, in some way it's kind of, uh, isolating people is kind of marginalizing people and is using the terms very incorrectly. It's, it, it, it's, it's not a way they're diagnosing people and they don't have the skills or the tool set to do so. And then you have places where like I'm at St. Paul's Baptist church in Philadelphia. And that is a space where they take their time and do um, workshops and sermonic themes around what it means to be well mentally. Right. And um, what it means to create language and partnership with community so that we can engage in a conversation around mental illness. So I think we have like sort of people in between those four layers, some not saying anything at all, some doing a really good job. And then the, the kind of in between where we're, we're just throwing, we're spitballing, we're saying, oh, folks are depressed. That's not depression. And stop calling people who are grieving depressed. Like that's, those are two 
different things. One can be grieving and depressed, but just because I'm grieving doesn't mean I'm depressed. So I think we have done a, a serious sort of um, disservice to uh, our conversation around mental illness and wellness in the church, to be quite honest. So well said. I'm going to join myself in the dating of that because I'm pretty sure that I heard quite a few sermons on being schizophrenic in your faith. Yeah. That it was an expression of being double-minded and that you couldn't make up your mind because you were schizophrenic. So they attached mental illness to an expression of faith. Yeah. Um, and so as soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, someone did a sermon series on that. Um, and people got up and shouted amen and were dead wrong. Right, right. Like just right. absolutely wrong. Uh, demonizing those who suffer with mental illness yes. and then spiritualizing something that is clearly um, harming this person. Um, right. We've right. got a lot of work yeah. to do. And so I'm glad a to lot. know that we have persons like you um, that are working and doing the work and giving us the words to say around this, um, this very important topic. So with that being said, what is the work and witness of the North American church going forward? Uh, what should our priorities be when addressing mental health and wellness? Yeah, we have to approach ministry from this holistic perspective, right? Holistic conversations around wellness. And when we talk about wellness, right, today we're talking about sort of mental wellness, but we're talking mental wellness, emotional wellness. We're talking safety, right? Physical wellness, a, a holistic, we are whole people, whole beings. And so to only say, I'm going to talk about your faith and your, you know, spirituality and nothing else matters is really um, forcing people to live sort of fractured and compartmentalized lives. So I think one of our witnesses is to figure out a way to engage the whole person in ministry. So what does that look like? What does it mean to journey with people in ways that speak to ways that address our whole selves and not place sort of in juxtaposition faith and mental wellness faith and financial wellness right and then what what can we do how can we develop these relationships these partnerships with therapists with chaplains with grief counselors or coaches right. with with parents right. professionals that can come in like death doulas i'm a death doula what what does it look like to to engage in relationship and partnership with people who are healers who can come in and support you the truth is most pastors are not um, taking courses in, uh, they're not, they're, first of all, they're not CPE trained, right? But they're also not uh, licensed professional counselors. They're not social workers. And not Speak only a word. do they not have that skill or that gift or that education, but they're also not focusing on mental health and mental wellness in seminary. And that's all, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. What I'm saying is, I recognize that I am not a great basketball player. So if you need a basketball player, I'm going to recommend some other people who can be on your team because if you bring me out there, I'm going to be taking pictures. I'm going to be talking. Hey, how are you? That's what I'm going to do on the court. And that's not going to help us win. So when it comes to being mentally and emotionally well, how about partnering with people who do this work, right? But then the last thing I would say is we got to figure out how to really do both and how to talk about theology and therapy, how to talk about Christ and mm. professional counselors, right? How to have prayer and if necessary, a prescription, right? So what does it mean to check our language? What does it mean to incorporate meaningful dialogue when we're exploring the text, right? Explore the, the sacred text in a way that doesn't ignore the mental and emotional like nuggets that are left as people are being described and living out their stories in the text. Let's not just pick out the shout because the truth is sometimes 
We need to explore what it means to feel like you are abandoned by God and others and to sit with the heaviness that come like, God, why have you forsaken me? That might not be a shout moment. That really might be a moment for me to talk about what to do when you feel forsaken, right? And, you know, and you have options. You might have an option to not be here anymore. So what does it talk to what does it look like to talk about death by suicide to people who have suicidal ideations? Like maybe that's the moment for us to have that dialogue and not rush to the shout part. The shout can be that I'm still here because you took the time to sort of explore what it means for people to sit with the weight of perhaps depression, perhaps anxiety, right? To sit with the weight of that and to let them know that God is still present, that their faith is not weak or low, right? Maybe that's the kind of conversation. So I think that's what we do. And that's how we make it a priority as we move forward in our, our dialogue about mental and emotional wellness in church. You said a mouthful while nodding your head as if you've just said nothing. So first I wanna talk about the fact that how do we address pastors who have difficulty sharing space and sharing power mm. with therapists? If I'm the pastor and I have the word, yeah. I don't know how comfortable many church leaders are with sharing space with another professional that says, I can do this because they think they can do all things through Christ Jesus, yeah. who has anointed them, who has called them to this church. So how are they going to share space? And then also we have churches that are addicted to toxic positivity that you got to preach me to a shout. So how do we help people to sit in their emotion, their full human experience and have these full um, open and authentic dialogues about the range of emotion that persons are having. And then you, you mentioned that Jesus is questioning God. Now that's a whole nother conversation because we have people who practice a faith that believes that you are not supposed to question God. So you're offering us a lot of assignments here. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 but here's the thing. We, God, first of all, God is big enough to handle questions, right? And not only that, Say God, that, right? God is big enough to handle questions, but God is also big enough to give you as pastor, preacher, leader in some sense of the house, um, a gift and a calling to live out in relationship and partnership with others. That this is not, so as a death doula, I know one pastor once asked me, well, why do I need you, right? He he was really serious about like, you telling people to call you as a death doula, I, I can do this. And when we sat down and we talked about um, what I do as a death doula, it's not that he couldn't show up in those ways, right? One, he could, but one, the, the responsibility that he has to do some other things would prevent him from showing up in any real meaningful way in all of the ways that I walk with people toward the end of life. So I am allowing you to have some burden relieved so that you can continue to do this other stuff that God has called you to do, right? So really looking at us as partners and not me as your replacement. And God is big enough to have partners in ministry where one can be preaching. Now I preach too, and I like preaching, right? But where one can be the pastor of the house and preaching and be in partnership with grief coaches and counselors and therapists who can provide another kind, another layer of support because God is concerned about our whole selves and not just, is we going to heaven when we die, right? What can we do to create a little less hell for people 
as they walk this earth, right? And so that that's it is a call. It is a big call. It's a call to to sort of step over, step away from ego for a moment, right? To it's a call to sit in our curiosity and not so much and I have all the answers. It's a call to believe that God can connect you with people who don't diminish your gift and you don't have to diminish their gift that we can coexist together for the wellness and the total healing of our people. So yeah, it is a big call, but it's not one that we can't do if we're willing to sort of sit in the fact that we serve a big God who didn't say we had to do this thing one way. That's right. Then, and then as the, as, the, as the body of Christ, how foolish we look that the limbs are attacking each other. I don't need you to help me, that I'm a hand, but I, I can walk by myself. No, you need those feet. You need them. Or that I'm the eyes, but I, I can say it myself. No, you need this mouth to give voice to this. Yeah. How foolish we look that we end up as the body of Christ, as we call ourselves, the hands and feet of Christ, fighting and attacking each other rather than sharing that space. It's also foolish to me that we're not talking more about death. Yeah. More than two years into a global pandemic, grief and the sense of loss is not going away. So what are healthy ways for us to view long-term grief and to hold space for those who have lost so much. Um, how might our response or lack thereof uh, be based on an understanding of death? Yeah. I, I know growing up, I saw people sort of rush past the, the, the moment of the cross, right? That moment. And they rushed me to the shout, the, 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 the he got up, right? And I think there's something that we lose in being whole people when we rush from that Good Friday, right? And we're unable to sit in the silence, perhaps, that was the silence and the curiosity and the wonder and the questions and the deep sadness and the grief of a Saturday. And we rush to, and I'm saying days, which y'all understand what I mean, right? And rush to the Sunday where he got up with all power in his hands, right? And some of us even get up on Friday, right? In the moment where I'm being crucified. We, we getting up on Friday just so that we can shout. Here's what I know. I recognize that we need joy. I recognize that that sitting in sadness is hard. I get it, right? But there is something about sort of naming. And this is what I tell people when I do sort of the grief coaching, right? Naming our losses, not just that big mama and auntie died, right? But that big mama and auntie died. That's death. That's a certain kind of death. Death takes many forms. Big mama and auntie died when I was serving as a chaplain uh, in a, a level one trauma center in Philadelphia. So when big mama and auntie died, I also had to tell you at the door that you couldn't come into the hospital um, as they were nearing their her last breath, right? So there's something that is dying in that space where you can't show up and do the thing that you do when your loved one is nearing the end of life. So yeah, big mama died, ritual that allows you to mourn with community died in a sense, right? There were all these, some people started a business in January, 2020. They saved their money. They spent years on a business plan. They done borrowed against their homes. They done left their job as an entrepreneur. They saved their money and they started a business in January of 2020, only to find out that less than 10 weeks later, they had to close the door. That's the death of a dream. So we are living with multiple deaths, right? And we're expecting people to get along as if things are normal. No, they're not. So what do we do? We create space, whether it is virtual, whether it's in the church house, whether we go to a park and stand apart from one another, whatever. 
we create space for people to name the loss. Like there is something very powerful in being able to say, this is who was here with me last year and they're not here now. There's also something very powerful in being able to say, I put all I had into this relationship and I'm divorced. Something very powerful in being able to name that I am dealing with some things that have died and to be able to do that in community where there is no shame, there is no judgment, there is no comparison. Oh, you only lost your business. I lost my spouse. No, my loss hits me a certain kind of way as does yours. Well, if we can create a space for people to come and just to name, right? But not only name, if we in our sacred spaces can validate that your feeling and your emotion is legit, right? That anger is a legit emotion. Sadness is a legit emotion. Disappointment is a legit To actually sit down and be willing to sit with people, right? Empathy, not telling people things will be better tomorrow. Guess what? It's my hope they will be. But what if they're not? I could be sitting in the dirt crying tomorrow too. So what does it look like to sit with me in the dirt not comparing, not providing a solution. I think as people of faith, especially leaders of faith, we feel that we always need to have an answer for you. But sometimes all I have for you is silence and perhaps even more questions. Perhaps what I have for you right now is to tell you that I don't think it's fair either that God let that happen. And can we allow that in the sacred space? So I think as faith leaders, allowing people to name, to feel, um, and not promising that tomorrow will be better, perhaps promising that God will be with you in your tomorrow and that I won't leave you either. Maybe that's what we do to give people an opportunity to grieve as individuals, but also as community. We we have had losses that are communal losses. And I, I joke around about this, but it's really serious, right? I talk about Chadwick Boseman, right? That when Black Panther came out, it was kids and adults going around talking about Wakanda forever, right? Now, granted, Black Panther is a fictional character and none of us, most of us did not personally know Chadwick Boseman, right? Most of us did not personally know him, but he did something for people, right? And so when he died, that was also a loss. So it's not even just that we're losing people that we know and love, we're losing people who represented something for us. And we need a space to cry, to cuss and fuss, to do what feels, what needs to come up out of us, right? What we often do is we silence the cry and that begins to lodge in our shoulders, in our back, in our necks as pain, right? Sometimes we think the pain we feel in our bodies is actual physical pain, it's not. It's the emotional pain that just lodged itself in my shoulders because I didn't scream when I felt the scream coming up, I silenced it. Come on. And when I silenced right. the scream, I silenced my emotion. Right, so what does that mean for us to, to give people a space where they can name, they can feel, they can sit with, without judgment, without being shamed, and without being promised a certain kind of tomorrow, right? Perhaps the only mm. promise I can give you is that in your lowest, most painful, tearful, unimaginable moment is that God is still there and that I will be here with you too. Maybe that's all I can offer. Because I don't know why a million people have died. I mean, I know why, but I don't know, right? I don't know why 
really more than a million people have died because you know they're talking about COVID specific but what about people who were healed but their bodies were damaged due to COVID and they died from COPD but it was really because they had like I don't know why right I don't know why relationships don't work I don't know why people women I was in the NICU I don't know why women who birthing persons who are about to give birth to a baby find out that the baby that they have in them is not viable, yet they still have to go through the laboring not to bring home a baby. I don't know why. I can't really give you an, a real answer with integrity, but what I can say is that I know it didn't feel like it. God is still there and I won't leave you. Maybe that's all I can do. So perhaps as a church, maybe that's what we do. Is we let people know that God is still there and that we are too. Maybe that's maybe that's what we're called to do. For me, I think what sticks out is that on Sunday mornings, it, it now feels, at least in the midst of a pandemic, that certain worship leaders are weaponizing, I will bless the Lord at all times. That you are not demonstrating faith if you don't open your mouth and give God a big praise. Uh, uh, loud applause and that you are somehow less faithful, less of a Christian, not following God or, or not following God as closely as you confess if you don't will yourself to praise God, even while being in your crucifixion moment. Like we're expecting persons that are being crucified in whatever manner that might come to, to be praising God while they're pinned down by financial struggles or what have you. I just find that to be uh, terrorizing, that you don't want to go into a space that is going to force you to feel a way that you don't feel that might delay your own healing. It might, it might in fact, cause more harm than good. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how scripture is often weaponized and used to, to beat people up, to make people feel better and to say, you're not a good Christian if you haven't gotten over this already. Right, that part, that part. And, and Doc, listen to this part, though, right? We also treat death like... Don't get me wrong. I understand that the ending of a relationship that was meaningful, that someone who you loved who was not here with you, it, it, it hurts, right? But death itself, like, is not necessarily the bad thing, right? And it, death itself, like, there's there there's some birth, some new life that comes out of some things dying, right? And so this this aversion, this we we have this sort of relationship with death that. Even things that need to die, mm. sometimes in faith spaces, we try to keep alive. And, I, and, and listen, that could be things or people that need to, like, and, and I'm not saying that we, we are going to die. And this is not my, like, th this is part of life. It's not the opposite of life. It is, it is a part of life, right? So what would it mean if we start to have some real conversations around the fact that someday I might not be here? as a reality then can we engage in conversations around what kind of work i might do now that might make the grieving process a little easier for my family that's right 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 so so yes i don't want to leave today but i might it is there something that i can do so that when i leave you ain't got to figure out you know d depending on your faith tradition like how you ain't got to figure out how i want to be dressed you ain't got to figure out how you gonna purchase, right? I want a green burial, right? I don't want you to spend $20,000 on a casket. No, put that money in somebody's college fund, help somebody get a house with that, right? What, can I help you? Because we've engaged in conversations around death. It's not taboo. 
it is something that needs to be a part of our conversations because it really is a part of life. We celebrate birth in a, a certain way. Is there a way that we can show up when people are nearing their last breaths that might be um, hopeful and celebratory that as they are being greeted, so there's as a death doula, I'm walking with you to the door as you are being greeted by the angels and the <laughs> ancestors. Like that is the role. It is there some way that we can engage in conversations that doesn't make that thing so scary, right? That doesn't make it something that we want to run from or fight. That's why when people say, you know, in the hospital, you'd be like, fight, grandma, fight, fight, fight. Well, what if the fight is I'm fighting to get to the angels and the ancestors? What if that is the fight? You want me to stay in this body and struggle where I'm in pain and sickness and I don't even have my, my same mind. Perhaps learning how to let people fight their way to the ancestors is something that we might want to do. So all of these kinds of conversations, I think, can help us talk about death differently and examine our faith, right? We believe that there is a resurrection. And so why do I make death such a, a, a forbidden topic? I might not resurrect the same way on this side, but we do believe there is a resurrection. And so... Like, let's engage conversations with that in mind. So what we're not going to do is skip over the fact that you, um, good Reverend Doctor, you rebuked us and said, sometimes we're breathing, breathing on things that God ain't breathed life into. I heard you and I don't appreciate you sneaking to preach in like you did. But I just want to highlight that, that she she really did come for us. Did she not? <laughs> Listening audience. That's for me. Uh, that we're breathing on things that God did not breathe into. I heard you. I heard you. Uh, the next question is this, but I didn't want that to slide. I don't want you to think you slid that one in. I heard you. Uh, my, my old church would say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. So um, rather than rather than employ healers who are equipped to handle these siblings with care and compassion, too often we resort to law enforcement, which may result in violence. So how can we support persons who are experiencing a mental health crisis? Yeah, so... That's so interesting, right? Because it takes money, I get it. It takes money in some ways to, to have programs that support mental and emotional wellness. I understand that. So one, let's put our money where our mouth is. We talk about whole and healthy people, and perhaps we invest in the things that help people live whole and healthy lives. And what does that mean? Um, obviously, mental wellness programs, and there are some churches who have counseling programs included in their ministry where you can set up an appointment to see a therapist. Like they have paraprofessional, which I might be a parent, but they have licensed professional counselors, social workers on staff that you can get support. Here's the thing though, crisis, well, I want us to be able to invest money in programs that help us keep people alive really during crisis. I want us to do that early on, right? So how can we alleviate the things that drive people to those crisis and traumatic and distressful That's moments, right? right? That's what right. about food and housing conditions? Is there something that I can, because if I'm stressed out because I can't feed my kids and I'm experiencing loss, right? What might have been something that I could process through with a little bit of support has now become a crisis, right? And so can I help you before the crisis? Like that's what I really want us to do. But if it is crisis time, right, churches, have relationships with law enforcement they do they do right they have a lot of these churches got police officers working as security in the church but right? what does it mean 
to. They do say that. I ain't saying I, I'm just they, they right. So, but what does it mean to demand that we employ social workers and licensed professional counselors to travel? Right, what does it mean to demand that I don't have to call nine one one for a certain kind of emergency, but I can call this number knowing that you're staffed for it? Right. What does it mean to listen to the people in the community who say the person right there in the middle of the street with the knife is actually really not harmless, harmful. They are having a crisis moment. And if we can just be around and wait it out, then we can support them. What does that look like instead of entering into those spaces where the community is saying that's just John John. We know John John need help. He actually is not going to hurt anybody. He's spinning out, but he only going to spin out right there. Do I need to shoot John John? No, but that's what we do because we're not listening to the people in the community. So I think churches have a, a responsibility, but also government has a responsibility to listen to the people in the community. And that's something that we can demand with our dollars, with our votes. I mean, there are ways that we can compress that justice issue. So, but I think churches have a, a direct responsibility to be in the lead of pressing the issue. Having said that, why is it so important that we not sit on our hands? What's at stake? If we don't get up and yeah. do something, um, if we don't become the, the hands and feet that we claim to be, that we espouse ourselves to be, that we confess ourselves to be as the body of Christ, then what's gonna happen? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the first thing that comes to mind is death. And I'm not, so, but I need people to know I'm not talking about like physical death. I'm talking about the walking dead, right? Mm -hmm. Where my hopes and dreams that I, so well, here's one thing I believe, that some of us can't dream because we're carrying so much grief and heaviness and things in us, the hopes and dreams in us have died and we're, we're unable to even dream. Dreams are connected to hope. When I can't dream, the hope is usually diminished as well. And so even though people may not be dying physically, what is at stake with us sitting on our hands is a world of living dead people, mm -hmm. right? a world of walking dead people, people who are unable to feel, unable to dream, unable to show compassion, not just for others, but for themselves, unable to show empathy, unable to grow and to change and to be whole. That's what's at stake. What's at stake is dead people. And we are supposed to be like, we, we believe that the one whom the son has set free, the one whom God has set free is free indeed. So how are we free and bound at the same time? Come on and right? preach. So we need to create an environment that allows people to live whole lives, which is a free life when you can be authentic. Now this doesn't mean, here's the thing. This doesn't mean that I might not need a prescription. Say That's that. not what that means. Say that. That doesn't mean I might not need a prescription. I might need a prescription. But guess what? If you don't shame me for needing a prescription, I can still be whole and liberated and free and, and healthy, right? If you don't shame me. What happens is because you shamed me, now that's where the fracturing comes in. But I might need a prescription to live my whole free, authentic self. Right. Well, well, let me do that. So that's what's at stake is having... A, and not just dead people. Really, I think a better way to say that, what's at stake is if we don't do anything, we are responsible for mm -hmm. killing people, I think is a, probably a better way. We are responsible for their deaths because we did nothing about their lives and their mm -hmm. wellness and their hope. 
right? So maybe I didn't put, maybe I didn't take your life, but I took everything that might give you life. And so that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. And the truth is, guess what? You and I aren't living if our siblings aren't living. That's well. right. <laughs> so what are we doing? Like, you know, like we think, well, I don't have to worry about that. Guess what? You don't have to worry about it. But they're, them being unwell, them being not able to walk in their wholeness and their healing, that's you too. You ain't by yourself. You connected to people. They're your siblings. So that's what's that stuff. Mm. Preaching and teaching. Thank you so much, Dr. J, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank our guest, Jamie Edie Chisholm, and extend to you, our listeners, an opportunity to know this Jesus, who does not sit on his hands, but sits next to a man whose name was Legion. The Raceless Gospel Podcast Season 3 is brought to you by Good Faith Media. You can support our work and witness by making a tax-deductible contribution to Good Faith Media at goodfaithmedia.org. This concludes this episode of the podcast, but not the conversation. Let's keep watching our body language. Head over to our Fellowship Hour at Raceless Gospel Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and Raceless Gospel Pod on Twitter. Absent in the body, but present in the Wi-Fi spirit. I'll see you there. On next week's episode of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, we'll hear from Amy Butler and talk about how and where and why the North American church toes the line. Season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast is brought to you in part by the CBF Podcast. Since 2016, the CBF Podcast has delivered over 300 episodes of interviews with thinkers, authors, theologians, creatives, and practitioners for conversations that matter. These critical and innovative conversations have garnered weekly support from around the world. The CBF Podcast tries to cultivate healthy and diverse theological dialogue in a culture fraught with division. Stream and subscribe to the CBF Podcast on Apple, Google, Amazon, SoundCloud, and all other major podcast platforms. Learn more at cbf.net slash podcasts. <laughs>